0: And then we ask what happens to their ability to direct or control attention with respect to those items in front of them. And so that's what we see. If you're not conscious of something, then your attention is knocked around by that thing in uncontrolled ways.
1: Hello and welcome to episode number 239 of the Armin Show podcast. We are here with the author of this wonderful book. People have said I should hold the book up longer for the video. This is the book, Rethinking Consciousness, Michael Graziano, author, professor at Princeton University, neuroscience and psychology. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a great thing. Now, I like neuroscience. A lot of my people i've spoken with it's in the category of neuroscience the brain human behavior i'm always interested in it what led you into this category in the first place how early on did you know you cared about the brain and how we process things
0: right i think i've always been fascinated with the brain probably Mm -hmm. as far back as i can remember uh i tried out a number of different topics though i mean i studied uh physics i was a physics major in college Mm -hmm. and i uh i I wrote fiction and studied that, and I studied music and it took me a while to sort of settle down but neuroscience what I like about neuroscience is that you you can't throw a stone without hitting a mystery, so it kind of makes it a very exciting place to 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 be
1: mhm now, one thing that's very cool and I know that sets you apart in one of the ways is and it's you can see it in the background there there's a piano. A keyboard if you will you have a uh, various other interests you have connected with like writing I believe children's books or yes. novels and then making music can you speak about some of your other interests separate from neuroscience in the first place
0: sure I mean I, I yes I've uh, I've studied music I studied music composition particularly and I write music and uh, you can check it out if you want on I have a YouTube channel uh, that you can look up and I have some of my uh, music on there and um, I enjoy it it's it's uh great fun I think it was just always very very interested and very curious about it you know when you're a kid you hear music uh, and I always used to think, how do they do that like what is if you lifted up the hood what's under there how do you how do you understand a a symphony? it seems so complex what's the inner workings of of, of a symphony or a, or a string quartet or whatever it is you're listening to. And I think I was just very curious about that. Um, and fiction as well. I've been writing fiction for a while. Yes, I have children's books out there uh, and um, I have uh, also novels more for you know a, a more adult audience. So, um, uh, but what I found, what I found o- uh, over time was it's much easier to write music on the side than it is to be a musician and do neuroscience in your garage or something like that which is kind of impossible so as a career choice the science ended up being the, the main thing that i i focused on
1: that makes sense did you start to look at it mathematically in some form the music at some point like the notes and like half notes above or an octave things like that
0: i i didn't really so uh I think there there are people who have looked at music very mathematically. I mean, there's a whole um, you know uh, school of thought in 20th century music, this uh, 12-tone school of thought, which is very mathematical. Uh, and I I I think music is fundamentally aesthetic and emotional, and that uh, I, I approach it that way. But it is also true that when you do anything at all. Uh, music, writing, science, whatever it is that you do, there's always an element of craftsmanship about it, which requires a certain amount of organization and structure and logical thinking. So you kind of got to put both together.
1: (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. It can't just be one art and the science together for the also for the fictional books. I always wonder about this. Do you include parts of your own existence in the fiction or do you create a story from scratch that has, no relation to yourself?
0: Oh, uh, I think all fiction is in some way autobiographical because you're always pulling something out of your own perspective. And my fiction is very surreal. And so I hope it's not literally autobiographical because it's really bizarre. <laughs> but, um, uh, but it has to come. I think all fiction comes at, in, in some sense uh, from an autobiographical point of view.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard. It's really hard to just disconnect from yourself and create some sort of external, completely separate thing. Yeah, I think that's impossible, actually. Right. I'll just go with it being impossible as well. (laughs) Now, so you are a professor at Princeton. How did you get to that point and how long have you taught there and what do you teach there? So
0: I teach neuroscience um, and uh, I'm in both the neuroscience and psychology department so kind of one foot in each. And as a psychologist, I'm much more on the neuroscience end. (laughs) And um, uh, I, when I I started doing neuroscience as an undergrad, so I was a physics major working away, uh, getting a little bored, because everywhere you look in physics, things have been figured out. (laughs) And it's, it's hard to find a mystery that you can actually contribute to. Uh, So Uh, At some point, I began to work in a lab on neuroscience, on on, um, the actually visual processing in the brain, and it was very exciting, and it was, uh, uh, that drew me into it, and um, from then on, I concentrated more on neuroscience, and continued on as a a graduate student, postdoc, and so on, um, at Princeton, and so I've just sort of been here the whole time.
1: (laughs) That makes sense. Um, one thing that just came to mind as you said that is physics didn't offer you many affordances, as you mentioned in the book, or opportunities, right. specific opportunities for right. action that you saw, like open space. That's a cool feature. Now, you, have, you run the Graziano Lab, which is based on yourself. What are some things you're working on in that lab at this current time?
0: So the f- fundamental question in our lab is, uh, what is consciousness? That's the question. And the way we think of it uh, as neuroscientists, the brain's this big biological machine that thinks it has all kinds of remarkable properties, many of which it doesn't have, some of which it does have. But we want to know why does this machine think it has an essentially magical consciousness property? And what good does that do it? You know, is there some cognitive use to that kind of self model? And that's what we study. We study networks in the brain, we study uh, human behavior, and we study the conceptual underpinnings of what this consciousness thing is.
1: That makes sense. One cool thing as I was reading through your book was that there was some connection with something I've always thought of about the brain. And then also, I recently spoke with a professor in England, Nick Chater. I don't know if you know of him, but His book is called The Mind is Flat, The Illusion of Mental Depth, which it kind of relates to, uh, you know, we add these layers of mental depth that maybe it's not the case. But you specifically focus on the concept of the attention you put on something and then consciousness, we create a layer that that attention is our consciousness above it. I don't know if I'm butchering it. Attention schema theory. How would you describe the theory that you have created?
0: Well, um, in its really most simplest form, uh, attention, and I I often don't like the word attention. I just don't know what other word to use, Mm -hmm. but it has many colloquial connotations that get in the way. Uh, Maybe one way to put it is uh, there's such a thing as deep processing of information, deep Mm -hmm. focused processing of information, and um, that is... um, Brains are good at that, and uh, computers can do that too. Um, uh, Human brains are particularly good at that. Deep focus processing of information. But uh, the brain does more than that. It does more than process information. It also builds uh, models or simulations or descriptions of what it's doing. And those descriptions are never accurate. They're always uh, a little bit simplified. They're always kind of quick and dirty descriptions. And so uh, the brain doesn't just focus its processing on something. It also is telling itself, this is what I'm doing right now. And when it's describing its own behavior, its own actions, it isn't saying to itself, I have 86 billion neurons, and they're doing this and that and interacting. No that that's way too elaborated. Instead, the story the brain is telling itself is, I have a kind of a non-physical magic-y thing inside me that's uh, aware of and conscious of that thing that I'm looking at, right? So when we talk about consciousness, when we talk about um, awareness, subjective awareness or consciousness, what, what, what is happening there is the brain providing itself with a simplified account of what it's actually doing. And that's in a nutshell what what this um uh, underlying concept is. And then there's all kinds of uh connections and and um reasons why that kind of self-description is useful. So, but that's the core of the theory.
1: Mhm. I noticed that in the book you described a frog with its eyes and its tongue and shooting out whatever it does, it just does and doesn't have a second layer where it calls itself its consciousness, it just goes, and then the animals that evolved, at some point dinosaurs and us mammals, it appears that consciousness uh, showed up. What is the main distinction between what we have brought to the table versus some amoeba?
0: Right, right. So uh, the, the, yes, the book traces the possible evolution. and. Uh, we can only really speculate at this point, but we know a little bit about the, the information processing in the brains of these animals. We know a little bit about the frog brain and the fish brain, and so on, and uh, lizard brains. We we know a bit about it. Uh, so the 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 point is that a certain kind of really deep processing of information is present in some animals and not others. And so attention, it's typically called. Certain kinds of attention are just not present in a frog. It can point its eyes at things. It can point its head at things. But it doesn't have this ability to focus its resources uh, on, a, on a set of signals that may be a very abstract set of signals. Uh, so frogs probably don't have this, probably don't have these kinds of mechanisms. Uh, but you start to see this richer kind of attention uh uh, coming in with maybe reptiles but certainly you see it in birds and mammals uh, who have a common ancestor in reptiles and so both birds and mammals have these very sophisticated forms of attention and therefore probably these very sophisticated uh, self models of what attention is doing and so uh we suspect that what we would recognize as as conscious experience is probably present to some degree in almost all mammals, if not all, and probably birds as well. This vast range of, of animals have at least some form of, of what we're
1: talking about. Mm. That's a wonderful thing to know. We have a, a little bit more processing that's recently evolved. I always think about the prefrontal cortex as our most advanced section. In the theory, you have two functions that are main functions of it. One of them is that uh, our brain's process to help control attention. And then the other one is we monitor other people's attention. So what is one way that our brain helps control our own attention? Uh, So
0: one, well, imagine a scenario where uh, well, let me, let me give you an analogy first. Mm-hmm. You have an arm. There it is, physical arm, moves around, does stuff. You also have a, a simulated arm. The brain constructs an arm model. It's mm-hmm. a bundle of information. It's constantly changing, and it monitors and keeps track of your arm. And mm-hmm. it's called the arm schema. And the brain uses mm-hmm. it to be able to control your arm appropriately and take out that arm schema and some people actually through a stroke or other damage lose their arm schema and their arm becomes useless they don't even recognize it as belonging to their own body anymore and Mm -hmm. they can move it but not well and it just sort of flaps there and they have no feeling of ownership over it so the arm schema monitors and helps control the arm now what we're talking about an attention schema is the same kind of thing, the brain's monitoring and keeping track of how it's f- focusing its resources on this or that item. So it's the brain's attention is being modeled by this attention schema. And so without it, or when it fails, that attention schema fails, you would essentially have very poor attention control. So your attention, would uh, not. you would not be able to hold it on one item, you would not be able to resist having it flip over to something else. You would not be able to keep it in uh, one location instead of having it fuzz out, it would go haywire, right? So that's the idea. And uh, one of the things we do is study these cases where people lose consciousness of really specific little items in front of them. And then we ask what happens to their ability to direct or control attention with respect to those items in front of them. And so that's what we see. If you're not conscious of something, then your attention is knocked around by that thing in uncontrolled ways.
1: Mm-hmm. I always think about it, like how much it takes so much of our, I guess, sugar resources or whatever we have to power just our main focus, that's where we're at at that moment. And then there isn't so much multitasking going on, there's subconscious, but there's not so much right. extra happening. The other function described in your theory is that it monitors yours and others' attention as compared to one another for uh, behavioral prediction. Can you speak on that concept? Sure. So,
0: when people study consciousness, often they're thinking about something private, like my own internal consciousness, but humans at least use this whole idea, this whole construct in a um, one of the ways we use it most is attributing consciousness to other people, and it's a, a huge part of social intelligence. It's a huge part of how we understand other people and make predictions about them. We attribute uh, a conscious mind to other people. So I'm talking to you, and I have this intuitive kind of reflexive way of, of, of attributing consciousness to you. I just sort of know at a deep level <laughs> that you are a conscious being, and it, and it affects how I interact with you. Uh, it allows me to make some predictions about your behavior, because if I think you're conscious of something, then I can start to predict how you might react to the something. If I think you're not conscious of it, you know, I don't know, we're driving down the road and I think you're not aware of a road sign, then I start making a different set of predictions about how you'll you'll behave. Uh, And so it's very, very important. It's central to our social intelligence that we perceive consciousness in other people. And humans have developed this to an extraordinary degree. We attribute consciousness at, you know, the drop of a hat. If, if, if it has eyes and sort of moves in a complicated way, we attribute consciousness to it. Uh, sometimes even if it doesn't have eyes, right? I mean, people talk to their uh, house plants and are, and swear that they have consciousness. And um, and I got mad at my computer the other day because at some deep intuitive reflexive level, something in me assumes the computer's conscious and is trying to uh, to harm me in some way. So. Uh, We're we're prone to this because we're social animals and and we evolved with this um, social machinery that projects consciousness onto the objects and people around us.
1: That brings to mind a few things like some individuals do this with, let's say, dogs that might not have as much uh, processing ability as us, but they'll attribute so much more because it's just built in. Let's give qualities. Or like a comedian, if they do a joke and people don't pick it up, they suddenly adjust to the level that they feel like it'll resonate with the audience. We're always attuned to yes, who are we around. Yes. That's kind of cool. There's a sign of intelligence, too, like how much you adjust because you understand yes. what am I interacting with. That's a cool feature. You talked about in the book uh, incoming signals and how they compete with each other uh, on their way in. What kind of competition occurs in that form?
0: So one of the really interesting stories in uh, neuroscience in, I don't know, the past 20 years, let's say, or more even, is that is the basis, the mechanism behind attention. So why do we need attention? Why do we need to focus on one thing? Well, if we didn't, then to process the whole world around us, we need a brain, you know, the size of a Buick or something. I mean, you need a lot of processing power, uh, but the the secret to intelligence, the secret to a truly intelligent brain is efficiency, is taking whatever you have here and focusing it so that you can intelligently and deeply process one thing at a time or a small number of things at a time. And so that's what attention is. It's this ability to focus in on the most important thing at the moment. So how do we do that? It turns out the brain is like a big series of uh, competitions Signals come in, like visual signals and auditory signals and so on. They come in, or internally generated signals, thoughts and memories, and they start competing with each other. That is, the actual neural signals are uh, in competition, where one signal is always trying to rise up and suppress its neighbors. It's almost like a big election, (laughs) where all the candidates are fighting with each other, and somebody's trying to come out on top and beat down the competitors and by going through layers and layers and layers of competition through neural networks, these signals slowly sort themselves until one or a small number rise up and win everything. And those are the ones that uh, the uh, brain uh, organizes its processing power around. So attention is the self-organizing process of a competition, signal competition. Uh, and that's something that's been studied in, in minute detail at the level of individual neurons in the brain. So that's a really interesting, a really cool story in, in neuroscience.
1: Mm-hmm. I've thought about that many a time uh, for our brain. Like there's a bunch of little decision trees that are battling one another. And then as a collective consciousness of all our all the people that the signals that are able to outdo the other ones. Those are the ones that rise in that bigger brain, I guess, sort of combined together. Right. It's like a biased competition as you refer to it from neuroscientist Robert Desimone. Yes. Described that way. Yes. We have two kinds of attention, overt and covert attention. One of them is underneath the radar and one of them is straight attention. Can you describe the difference between those two? So
0: overt attention is basically where you're looking. Or if you don't have eyes, if you're a creature that's mostly ears, it's where you point your ears at. I mean, overage attention is, yeah, the the sensory systems are big satellite dishes. And so one way to filter information is to just to point them at an interesting thing. And then everything else in the world kind of uh, is not processed. And the thing you're pointing at is. That's a simple way to solve the attention problem. Uh, But we also, we um, have this thing called, covert attention, another way in which mammals and birds differ from, say, frogs, (laughs) we have covert attention. And covert attention is the ability to uh, not focus our eyes, but focus our mind on something. For example, you may be looking straight at someone, but your attention is on something completely different. So you're looking straight at someone's face, but you're thinking about an itch on the bottom of your foot <laughs> or you're um you're uh you know looking at a book like that's where your eyes are pointed but your mind is on some conversation you had yesterday right so uh, or even you're focused on something you can see but it's off to the side but your eyes are nailed to the center but you're maybe uh, talking to one person, but you're listening really hard to the guy over there who's saying something interesting, but you're not looking at him. Uh, you're just focusing your mind on him. And so this is basically what over uh, a covert attention is. Uh, it's focusing the mind, really the cerebral cortex, focusing your cortical machinery on something that you're not necessarily pointing your eyes and ears at. Uh, and so um, that's a kind of the the most sophisticated form of attention that that we have so
1: Mm. I was just thinking about in terms of paying attention it almost seems like the covert attention was worth more than 50 percent of the total attention when people focus both overt and covert attention on something it's like amazing that's like the really cool time of focus often it's more the case that overt is going as usual and then covert is distracted elsewhere and it's not so functionally efficient paying full attention in some form right now the thing about affordance uh that you mentioned in the book that one i identify with heavily because i see like in life there's a lot going on but there's very little where it matters or you have an ability to alter things or adjust things there's little small white spaces in there and these are affordances how does our brain focus on these affordances or specific opportunities for action
0: Right. So uh, just to um, summarize, uh, the idea of an affordance, uh, which um, uh, Gibson, the psychologist Gibson, really popularized. So the idea of affordance is not what is out there, but what are my opportunities to act on it? Like um, a cup, a coffee cup offers the affordance of picking it up and drinking it. But it might also, if you want, I suppose it might uh, provide the affordance of um, picking it up and throwing it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there there are different actions you can make on on the same object, and some objects are uh, there. You go. Some mm-hmm. objects are really full of um, of affordances that are very important to us, and some not so much. Uh, so um, uh, you know, a donut. Uh, something we're very interested in in affordance a tree branch to a bird is something you land on and grab with your feet right and so uh, what's important for the person or animal is encoding the properties of the stimulus in a way that's action-oriented and not just passively what is the world's like around me but what are the action opportunities for me out there and so that's very much how our brains work uh, so when your system, when you look at something, when you look at an apple and your visual system processes that apple, uh, ultimately it's not just coming up with a description of an object. Everything in the visual system is geared toward these associations between what you see and what you can do to it. Uh, and so that that's really where affordance comes in. The whole brain is a big affordance machine. It's just, that's our job in the world is not to see the world for what it is, but to see the world for what opportunities it affords us.
1: It's nice, many years ago, I would think of our brain as uh, just stimulus comes in, we do a little processing and send out a response, but that wonderful level of processing and examining what's important and how much I'll focus on it, that's our full, that's what we do, that's our super ability in some form. Yes, yes. You've described that consciousness or multiple people have described the consciousness is a hard problem because you can't confirm it from the outside. It's a private experience. Is there any way to get in there, I guess, at some point and like the other per- have the other person see what you see? Is there any thoughts in that category?
0: Uh, I think that the mind is information right? So I've described it as a, like a trillion stranded sculpture made out of information and it's constantly changing, uh, and, uh, adapting to the world out there. But that's what the mind is. It is information and information is something that you can, in theory, confirm from the outside. I mean, it's such complex information. We don't know how to do that yet. <laughs> like we could do that for a very simple brain or a, or a very simple machine. Uh, we could probe it and, and, um, measure the information in it the human brain not yet (laughs) but in principle you could go in there and see what is in there i think what's happened is on the consciousness topic so we're convinced us brains us human brains us biological machines we're convinced that we have a non-physical magic inside of us it's basically non-physical Non-physical in the sense you can't push on it and measure a reaction force. Uh, You can't break it and measure its tensile strength. Uh, It's just there floating in us. Uh, And that concept, I think, is, well, I'm not the only one who thinks this. That concept is not quite right. Like, that's what the brain thinks of itself, because that's a useful simplification. Uh, And so um, the hard problem of consciousness is usually formulated in this way how can we ever scientifically study something that's non-physical and kind of floating inside of us and the answer is a we can't and b it's not there but what we can do is understand at a specific scientific and mechanistic level why the machine thinks it has that property right so the hard problem is something that a lot of us are not terribly impressed by so it's it's um w- one way to put it is uh we can begin to explain why people f- mistakenly think there is a hard problem
1: that makes sense i'm also with the same concept i feel like there are all at a small enough view it would be, oh, I see this. I see the connection there. It would just be there. So I don't really have that view that it's some extended thing. Uh, also, do you uh, extend this thought into, I think, I think of people's minds, like, for example, a brand that's popular. I just think about it like that brand description is encoded in 80 million people's minds, and that makes it what we call popular. And if we just erase that from 80, people's, 80 million people's minds, that little portion suddenly that brand would no longer be, do you think about minds in terms of like that?
0: Uh, uh, if I'm not a hundred percent sure what you mean. Um, like,
1: like uh, you know, we have certain uh, memories of a location or a certain uh, company brand somewhere in our brain encoded somewhere because it's physically there. So if somehow that was, those molecules were moved or adjusted or erased, then that, you could erase that from 50 million yeah. people if there was a physical removal
0: that that yes first for sure uh yes me- these memories and concepts and beliefs and thoughts they're all instantiated in very specific uh hardware i mean they mm-hmm. are the product of in- neurons interacting in specific ways uh, via connections synaptic connections and if you alter those physical connections and that that physical hardware you would you could you would definitely erase those, those uh, thoughts, concepts, emotions, everything else. It all depends on that hardware.: Yes.
1: Now in your lab where you do research, uh, where is the most research done? Is it on other animals? Is it on uh, people who have had some sort of brain damage? Is it on uh, like schematic concepts, or how is it done usually?
0: So what I do is I study humans mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how to study consciousness in animals that don't talk about it some people do but i think it takes a lot of uh, sort of um assumptions that right. don't that, that are that are a little strained so i study people um i typically do uh behavioral studies that is people answering questions or pressing buttons or looking at stuff on a screen and then uh typically I'll take that behavior and put it in a scanner, an MRI scanner. And then we start looking at what brain networks are involved and how different parts of the brain uh, interact with each other uh, during these kinds of tasks. So that's the, that's the kind of thing we do. And um, that's been very interesting. I mean, there's, there's parts of the brain that are involved in social thinking that have been studied for a while, in social cognition, it's called. And those are the parts of the brain that also show up when people start talking about their own consciousness. And so we get this very strong sense now that uh, our own consciousness and the consciousness we project onto other people, all of this is coming from a set of information built by the same networks in the brain.
1: In, in that kind of research, uh, what other categories of science do you mesh with any other categories of science in connection with your own research?
0: Uh, well, it's, it's a, it's an definitely an intersection, right? Mm-hmm. An intersection of psychology and neuroscience, uh, social neuroscience and, uh, sensory neuroscience. A lot of what we do is visual consciousness. Uh, are you conscious of this color in that spot? Um, a lot of what we do is social neuroscience. Uh, what do you think about this other person? And is he aware of this or that? Um, it intersects with, um uh, philosophy of course um and uh so it's it's it, it intersects with engineering so the core ideas here is the brain is a big machine that controls stuff and one of the most fundamental principles of control engineering is the control system should have models or simulations of the thing it's controlling and that's the whole heart of this theory is the brain has simulations of itself because it's controlling itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those simulations are always simplified. They're kind of cartoonish self-models. And that's uh, that's engineering. That's straight from control engineering. So actually quite a few different branches of science and evolutionary uh, biology as well all kind of converge and glom together on this the topic of, um, of consciousness.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you... Has there been any books that have been important early on, or that you liked a lot, or any scientists that you mm-hmm. identified a lot with along the way?
0: Uh, on this topic of consciousness, I think it's. Uh, I think we the field is inventing itself anew right now, and a lot of the previous work has kind of gone in the wrong direction. Oh, right. So the 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 classic question is. How does a brain produce this magic essence, right? And almost all theories have focused on that. And basically what's happening now in my work, and um, I'm very happy to see lots of other people's work now, what's really happening is, okay, it doesn't produce magic, but why does the brain think it does, (laughs) right? So it's a totally different approach. And that means uh, it's actually not that easy to find inspiration directly on this topic of consciousness, Uh, But on neuroscience in general and science in general, sure, there's lots of of wonderful, brilliant work out there uh, that's, um, you know, very, very inspirational.
1: I like how you brought that up. I could almost do a whole thing just talking about the questions that we ask. When a question is set up in a certain way, then our brains or our effort goes toward solving the assumption underneath that. But maybe that wasn't the actual Assumption that fits reality. And then if you rewrite the question, suddenly a bunch of effort is put in this yeah. certain category. Yeah. Very important where a question goes to. Last thing I want to check, if you had a uh, message to all people of the earth about what you do or you would, what you would want them to know or what something you think is important, what would you say to all people?
0: I would say many people who think about this or who hear about this stuff, consciousness, mm-hmm. Right have an impression of some kind of uh, interesting philosophical question, something to think about, kind of dorm room philosophy. But this is possibly one of the most important topics for our species, because understanding consciousness is leading toward technology, and the technology is transformative technology. So we're talking about building machines that have the kind of consciousness we have. And we're talking about ultimately migrating minds from one platform to another, like from a biological brain to an artificial device. And so we're talking about something that's more transformative than any technology has ever been, right? We're talking about understanding consciousness at an engineering level is the basis for uh, a a a change that you know is bigger than invention of writing or the uh, invention of uh uh telecommunications or the computer revolution thus far we're talking about something fundamentally transformative to who we are so there's something really pragmatic really practical and something that people should be thinking about because a future is coming to us and if we don't think about it you know scary bad things can happen (laughs) with technology so um this is, this is our future. Understanding consciousness well enough to engineer it is, um, is looming at us. It's coming very, very rapidly.
1: The importance of it is very clear. I find the human mind to be the most interesting thing on the planet. This is the book Rethinking Consciousness by Michael Graziano. I want to thank you for having been on this episode. Very informative about the mind and what we think of consciousness as a term thank you you
0: very much for having me
1: this is a great thing and we are out